This morning, we're going to be in the book of Esther. And the title of our series is The Silent Sovereignty of the Unseen God. So if you wouldn't mind, find in your Bibles Esther. If you find Psalms and then you go left, you'll get there. It's uh, right before Job, so the book of Esther. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there's some paperback Bibles in the pews. Or, excuse me, in the seats, pews. I've been doing this not long enough. Um, so in the seats, there's some paperback Bibles. And on page 283 or 262, depending on which copy you have, is the book of Esther. Uh, while you're finding Esther, I want to give you some background and some context of where the book of Esther comes from and, and why it's in the Bible. So Esther is an interesting book because, as Mark said, it doesn't reference God once. Uh, that makes it unique among the rest of the books of the Bible uh, as only one of two books, Song of Solomon being the other one, that doesn't specifically name God. And so like the last book we preached through, which was the book of Hebrews, um, the author of Esther is anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. We, we would guess that they had, it could have been Mordecai because he had this knowledge of the Persian um, governorship and how that all worked and what it meant to be in the throne room because whoever wrote it is very knowledgeable of the inner workings of the Persian government at the time. But we don't know who it is. Um, but also like Hebrews, we do know, we may not know who penned it, but we do know who wrote it. You see, 2 Timothy 3 says in verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So while we don't know who actually wrote it down, we do know that God has put the book of Esther in the Bible for us, for us to read about who He is and His sovereignty and how He saves and how he rescues. And that's good news this morning. The book of Esther is one of the books of history. And so, um, if you like history, if you're a history buff, go ahead and raise your hand. If, you, if that gets you excited. All right, great. There's some of you here. So you'll really enjoy it. I'm just going to whet your appetite today. It's not going to be this diving in, but we have nine weeks to do it, so we'll get there. Um, maybe you don't like history. Maybe that's a little boring for you. Maybe you like a good movie. Could you raise your hand if you like a good movie? Okay, good. We're almost there. We almost got everybody. How about a book? Anybody still read a book? All right, perfect. So if you like story, you're going to enjoy Esther. If you like history, you're going to enjoy Esther. But the, the main reason you're going to enjoy Esther, because the God you see in it, the God who saves, the God who redeems, the God who restores and is constant and always there. So this morning, we get into this book of Esther. It's a dramatic compelling, sometimes repulsive, sometimes it's very humorous, sometimes he uses irony. It's that kind of book. It's really exciting. It's an epic narrative of literature. It's written to draw you in and captivate your attention. It has plots and subplots. It has twists and turns, good guys and villains. So we get to dive in today. This said, I want to encourage you this week to read the whole book of Esther in one sitting. Uh, we're going we're to take it chapter by chapter in this setting, but there's a, a gift that we have to be able to read the whole book of Esther in one sitting. It takes a little bit of time, probably about 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the speed that you read. Um, my family and I use the YouVersion audio app 
and uh, we listened to it, and it took about 35 minutes. So if you can carve out 35 minutes in your week this week, it will be really beneficial because you get the whole story. You listen to it, and you see God moving throughout it, and it's really, really encouraging. Speaking of the whole story, um, we're not going to read the whole Bible this morning, but we are going to look at the story of the Bible throughout the ages. And so we know that in Genesis, God set aside a people for Himself in Genesis 17, and He made a covenant promise to Abraham. And He promises to bless the whole earth through the Hebrew nation of Israel. And this people would become known as, would become known as the Jews. And so we have the patriarchs. We have the promise to Abraham. We have his son Isaac. We have his son Jacob. And then one of his many sons is Joseph. And Joseph is sold into slavery. And he gets moved to Egypt where he becomes prominent in the Egyptian government. And God uses that and brings the, the whole people into Egypt and, and maintains them and preserves them and saves them. And then years later, they're in bondage in Egypt. And God raises up Moses. And Moses leads them out in the Exodus, out of Egypt. And there's these huge, awesome wonders that God does where He parts the Red Sea. And it's just amazing. And you read those stories and you're like, wow, that's awesome. I'm not going to find those types of things in here. We're just going to see the steady hand of God moving in everyday life. But it's the same God. It's the same God who works in power and wonder and in the subtleties of life. And so that's exciting We see Joshua lead the people into the promised land after they wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience in the wilderness. God raises up Joshua and leads them into the promised land. And and God tears down the wall of Jericho, another powerful display of who he is. And so it's that that God that we're going to read about today. God establishes judges to lead his people in the promised land. But like us, those people were fickle. They wanted something different. They argued with God. They told him what they wanted. And he gave them a king. He gave them Saul. And after Saul, he gave him David. And after David, he gave him Solomon. And and Solomon's son, uh, he didn't do such a great job with the kingdom. And so then they divide into two. And then after they're divided into two kingdoms, then they're overrun by the Assyrians and the Babylons. And they're taken into captivity. And the Jews live in exile. And there's a Persian by the name of Cyrus who conquers the whole known world. And he takes over everything. Like We think of world powers and we think America, we think some other countries that have a real stranglehold on the world, but this guy like literally owned the whole world. It was all under his reign. And so after Cyrus, who was a gracious and kind emperor, he did let the Jews return to, to Jerusalem and continue to rebuild the temple. Um, and some of the Jews went back to Jerusalem, and some of them stayed in exile. Some of them, that's all they ever knew, so they stayed there. And so, enter the story of Esther. We get to read about what it means to live in exile. This is two kings later. So you have King Cyrus, his son Darius, and then we have uh, Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. Probably more of you know him that way. So that's the story. That's the greater picture. And we know that all of this leads to God preserving these people, sending them back to Jerusalem, and, and, and then bringing His promised Messiah that, that they're waiting for. So this morning, let's pray. Let's ask God to open our eyes and to stir our hearts with uh, just His story. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it's a gift to us. 
God, in your word, you've revealed your plan for the world. The story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God, we come expectantly this morning and know that you will meet us here in this place. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us in our study of the book of Esther today and for the coming weeks. Our prayer is that you would reveal yourself to us and that we would find you glorious. We ask that you would captivate our hearts with your word, that we would declare your greatness with our lives. God, be with the partners that are in the back ministering to the children this morning. Pray that by your grace you will reveal yourself and stir affection for you in their hearts. Thank you for putting this desire in our hearts, for hearing our cry and meeting our need this morning and every morning. Amen. We're going to change things up. It's going to be a little different this morning. Normally we read the whole passage, and then we go back and kind of dissect. But this morning I want to read the passage in three separate sections. So we'll, we'll read a section, we'll go in, we'll kind of describe what happened there, and then we'll move on to the next part. So that's, that's the goal this morning. Hopefully you've found Esther by now. We're going to be in Esther chapter 1. Um, I'll read and, and you follow along with me. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Wow, this King Ahasuerus, he seems like a, a pretty powerful dude. We're, we're supposed to be awed by this introduction. Um, I, I'm going to try to explain some of the way that the writer uses narrative to just really display the story, but I do a, a poor job of it. I would encourage you, I've been blessed by um, the Bible Project, two guys, uh, Tim Mackey and John Collins, and they, do, they create these videos and just kind of describe through the literary path kind of how the story is laid out. And they've got some great stuff on this, so I would encourage you. Hopefully, again, this just whets your appetite this week, and you go back and you're like, man, I want to know the story of Esther and start just doing the same type of research that, that we've been doing. But um, the goal of the author's first introduction here is to awe us. Maybe even, maybe even we're in awe and we're also a little repulsed, like the waste and uh, just how 
boastful this seems. But really, it's simply a description of Ahasuerus, his kingdom, and this really big party that he throws. But it comes with implications of strength and wealth and power. So I want to look at four points um, this morning out of this first section to, to kind of describe who Ahasuerus is. Um, so the first point is the magnificence of his kingdom. I think I have a slide with the four points up. And um, So the magnificence of his kingdom. He rules the known world, like we talked about earlier, except for Greece, from India to Ethiopia. So here's a map, if you wouldn't mind putting that map up. This is taken from the ESV Study Bible, showing just how vast and all-encompassing the Persian Empire was at the time of Xerxes. So it's, it's a little tough to see, but everything you see is under his rule. Um, and and that's, that's the world at this point. So with the exception of Greece, the Persian Empire dominates the known people groups of 5th century B.C. And some of you may know from your history um, that he actually has a little trouble with the Greek um, and conquering them. And we'll get into that some more as kind of the story per- is uh, played out, coinciding with those things. But this, this map is going to be really helpful to remember as we read through the story of Esther and realize that when, it, when this king makes a decree, it goes throughout the whole world. It actually has an effect on all of the Jews that are, that are dispersed throughout the world. So when he says that they're all going to die... They're all going to die. It's, we, probably the closest thing we have is we have Nazi Germany and World War II and the eradication of the Jews at that time. But even, even that wasn't as big and as all-encompassing as this is. So there's a, there's a real threat. There's a real um, terror that's involved later on in the story. So again, we're, I'm setting the table. We're going to have a couple weeks in this. And we just want to pull out some key points that when this king makes a decree, there's some, there's some magnitude behind it. So the magnificence of his kingdom. I want to look at the next um, point in the first paragraph. And so it's the lavishness of his riches. He has gold and silver couches. Um, at first I was thinking That's, that can't be like actual, the metal couch. It's got to be maybe just painted gold or, or painted silver. But I think that the reality is that he has benches made out of gold that they sat on. That's, that's some real wealth right there. That's crazy that he's la- that lavish in his riches. It says violet and purple hanging. So as we're kind of going through this, I remember from my history lessons growing up that purple was the color of royalty and, and that's because they would use this particular mollusk to pull out the dye. It was called murex, and, and they would dye the fabrics, and it would give it this deep purple uh, violet color. And because those uh, mollusks were so rare and hard to find, it was only the royals and the very powerful got to use that color. So that's, that's just another display of his opulence, of like this grandeur that he has in all of his um, riches. And then marble, porphyry, mother of pearl, precious stone. I had to look up porphyry. Probably you didn't, but I did. Um, it's this type of crystal. It's, it's a, a, met, or a rock that has two different size crystals in it. 
And so it just, it's another precious, something extremely valuable and precious. And they made it for the floor they walked on. That's the, just the grandeur and, and the magnitude of this. It's, it's really ridiculous how, how rich this guy was. I want to look also at the greatness of his gifts. So um, the greatness of, of his gifts, we read that there's a feast for 180 days. And he invites everybody into it. Everybody's invited to come and feast with him and, and the rest of his kingdom for 180 days. And then, because that wasn't enough, there's another feast of seven days after that. And so it's just this rich feast party that goes on for, for many days. And um, one, of the, one of the commentators said that really it's 180 days because that's how long it took for him to display all of his riches before the people. 180 days. At this party, each person had an individualized goblet of gold. It says none of them were alike. Everybody had their own. These are great gifts that he showered on the people. Royal wine, not just any wine, was lavished on the guests. Only the very best was given out. Fourth point is the power of, of this king's edict. We talked about it earlier. There's, there's a power that he has that every word that comes from his mouth has an effect on everyone. His, his edict in this, par- in this paragraph was let every man drink without compulsion. It says in verse 8, for the, the drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So he wants you to have fun. He wants you to enjoy this time. And, and to do that, he made a decree that everyone will enjoy this time. Every decree, edict, and mandate given by the king affects all of the known world. One of the key points of the story is that when, a, when the king made an edict, he couldn't revoke it. He couldn't say, oh, I made a mistake. Let's take that back. Once he made it and stamped it and sealed it, it was done. And it was for everyone. And so we're going to see that as, we, as the story of Esther plays out. That King Ahasuerus, he's, he's led by whoever's around, and he makes these decrees. And once he makes a decree, it can't be taken back. It can't be revoked. So there's power in his edict. Again, magnificence of his kingdom, the lavishness of his riches, the greatness of his gifts, and the power of his edict. Let's move on. Esther chapter 10, and we're going to read or chapter 1, verse 10 through the first half of 12. says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. She was lovely to look at, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. So pretty bold for Vashti to say, no, we've already seen that this king is powerful, that he rules everything. And she says, no, I won't come. So we ask ourselves, why? Why would she not come? And we can, we can make some assumptions. That it's pretty clear when you read that the king, his heart was merry with wine. Uh, 
to bring Queen Vashti before the kings in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty. So we can make these assumptions of why he wanted to bring her before the people. But here's the key. The, the story, doesn't, it doesn't matter why. We know that God's using this particular incident in his grand scheme to create a vacuum there that's going to be filled later on. It's a key point in the story. It's one of those twists. It's one of those turns that we're going to see throughout. God uses Vashti, Queen Vashti, saying no, and then her, her eventual demise as queen and being taken away and told never to come back. And God's going to use that, and he's going to place his, his queen, Queen Esther, in that place. And so God is using this as a key point. So, so let's not get wrapped up in the why and start to, to guess at those things. Let's just look at it and say, you know what? She said no, and she was removed. Now what is God going to do? Sometimes we ask why to the things that happen in our life. And sometimes it's okay. And sometimes we just have to trust that God's doing, that he's moving, that he's working, and rest in that. Because we've seen him do it in the past. We know that he's good. We know that he's ultimately for our good and his glory. And so we rest in that. This is one of those things, though, that, that if you're not looking for the hand of God, you could simply attribute it to chance, um, to fate, to destiny. There's a lot of things that we could, a lot of reasons we could give for Vashti to say no. But the Bible states that God is sovereign, that he's in control. Acts 17, Paul is speaking to uh, the Greeks in Athens. And he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each of us. See, God's in control. It says that He determined allotted periods. And so He has uh, a period for Vashti to be queen. And then when that period is done, He establishes His Queen Esther. God's in control. He's sovereign. He's moving in, in, in our country today. He's moving in the country's... Um, all around the world since the beginning of time to establish His will and His sovereignty. We know, because in Romans 8.28 it says He's working all things together for our good, we know that Him being sovereign is a good thing for us. That Him being in control is something that we can rest in, that we can take joy in. So this is the first uh, key turning point in the it's actually the first um, action that takes place in the story. We had nine verses of kind of setting the table, showing who Ahasuerus is, that he's having a party. And then now the action happens and Queen Vashti says no. And you're going to see that there's a lot of action, a lot of things that happen in the story. And we can look from our hindsight 2020 view and we can look back and say, man, that's obviously God moving in those situations. But in, at the time... They didn't have that hindsight 2020 view. They couldn't say, 
Obviously, God's moving in these situations. They just had to trust that he was. They don't see the end of the story. They don't see his redeeming power in in rescuing the Jews, but they trusted him. Let's continue on. Second part of verse 12. We're going to go through the end of the chapter. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marsena, and Mimikin. The seven princes of Persian Media who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimikin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, may, who, excuse me, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same of all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mimikin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. There's a lot there. Um, we see that first, Ahasuerus, I'm going to call him Xerxes from here on out. That's just easier for me to say over and over. Um, so we're just going to call him Xerxes. I think I had a slide. Do you have that slide that we, he actually has a couple different names. Um, but Xerxes is his Greek name, which a lot of us know him by because a lot of the history tells us that. And then he has his Hebrew name, Ahasuerus, and then he has his Persian name. You can read it. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to call him Xerxes from here on out, but uh, here we see Xerxes and his anger at being told no. And here the author of Esther begins to deconstruct this rule and reign of this great king. So we had nine verses where it just established this mighty king, and yet it just takes a woman saying no, and now it's starting to crumble. And, and it's not just him that's thinking that. It's all of the princes. They're trying to figure it out too. They're, uh-oh, she said no. Now everybody's going to say no, and the whole thing's just going to come to ruin. What are we going to do? Right? And King Ahasuerus in his anger decrees that the queen can no longer come before him. Man, this is the humor 
of just this story. She said, no, I don't want to come before you. So his punishment was she would not be able to come before him. It's, you get into this and, and just the author and the subtlety that he writes with or she writes with is amazing. And so that, I find that extremely humorous as I'm reading it. So that's her punishment, what she wanted. That should be okay. That should probably work out for you. And his advisors get nervous and are afraid that if word gets out about this, it's going to create pandemonium. There's going to be an epidemic that all women will begin to revolt against their husbands. We're going to see this theme run throughout the story of Esther. Um, Again, a lot of this is just establishing some some things that we're going to go through over the next couple weeks. But Ahasuerus, as mighty and powerful as he is, there's always someone sitting next to him that's really giving him wisdom, and, or folly in this case. These seven princes are there, and, and so he goes to them and he says, what should I do? And they tell him, well, you should make a decree. And so he's, they're worried that the word's going to get out about Vashti saying no. And so then they make a decree to, again, a very humorous thing, that they're going to make this decree across the world about what happened. So instead of sweeping it under the rug and just trying to take care of it quietly, they're going to make a big deal out of it. But we see that it's the seven princes this time. Later on, it'll be Haman. And then after that, it'll be Esther. And then after that, it'll be Mordecai. But this this king that we spent this time establishing as a great king really doesn't have a lot of wisdom outside of himself or, or except for outside of himself. And so he leans on people, whoever's around at the time. And so he makes some bad decisions, he makes some good decisions, but it's all usually based on the people that he's hanging out with. So they make a royal decree, declare to the whole world that the king can't control his family. And everybody knows about it. And they decide that instead of fixing the problem, we're just going to replace the problem. Enter Esther in chapter 2. And so now we have the table set. We've seen what God has done, how he is using, how he's creating a vacuum and a void with Queen Vashti and removing her from the throne. And we're going to see how in his sovereign grace and guidance, he leads Esther into a place of power so that she can eventually be there to be his mouthpiece and save his people. It's hard with with a with a scripture like this to bring application to our lives. Like, man, that doesn't sound anything like my world. If you knew what I had for dinner, it would not compare to the, the riches of this king. There's no way that, that any of this makes sense for my world. But let, let me ask you a couple questions. Have you ever overreacted? Right, I have. Have you ever had friends, maybe acquaintances, who gave you bad advice? See, both of these things are evident in in King Xerxes' reaction to being told no. Um, Until this point, it may have been difficult for any of us to relate to the king. None of us have his wealth or his prestige. There are probably many of us in here who think that if we were in his position, we would have acted different. Let me simply ask you this question. How do you react to being told no? 
Okay, I'll answer. Um, I react poorly. I react poorly. You can ask my family. Um, they know when I get told no, there's something in me that rises up. It stirs this frustration and anger. And, it, and all of these things stem from my root idols that I have in my life that I struggle with daily. Tim Keller is really helpful in, in explaining some of the reasons, some of the, the, the deep-seated idols that we have in our lives that play themselves out in sin. So I want to go back and I want to look at King Ahasuerus and those first four things that we described about him. We looked at the magnificence of his kingdom. He has control. He has control over the whole world. He's in charge. We looked at the lavishness of his riches, that he has this comfort. Right? He has anything that he wants, probably two of anything that he wants. He has these great gifts that he gives out, seeking approval from, from the people that serve under him. And he has power. There's power in his word that when he speaks or he decrees or he declares, things happen. And so we see these things in our lives. Maybe we don't have the power or the control that he had, but we seek to hold on to those things that we do have power or we do have control of. When someone tells us, no, it's an affront to us, and we say, no, that's mine. Right? I think about, man, with my children, they tell me no. And just how, don't you understand that I know what's best? And there's something that stirs in me, and I'm just like, God, put that to rest. I pray that I would not want to seek power, control, comfort, approval more than I seek you. And yet we do it. And so in this story, we all want to be the hero. But in the story, all of us are in some way King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. We all have these things in us that we don't like to be told no there's a reaction. A lot of the times, it's a sin reaction that happens in our lives. Or maybe it's not no. Maybe it's just told, yes, do this. And we can all probably think of something where we've, we've reacted and said, God, would you change those things in us? You see, the circumstances that could change my comfort level, which is one of the things, or my bank account, my riches, or my popularity, or my influence, they would not eliminate the idols in my heart. They would just be portrayed differently and be exhibited on a different scale. And so we have those idols that we cling to, that God is working out in our lives, that He is sanctifying us by His Holy Spirit to replace those things that we seek with Him to make Him the most glorious thing in our life, to make Him the object of our affection and our desire. You see, God knew that we had these heart issues. He did. He knew it from the beginning. He created us, and He knew that we would rebel, and God knew the plan. He knew that we would need a Savior, that we couldn't wrestle with these idols and somehow fix them and control them. We need a Savior. We're desperate for it. He knew that we couldn't fix ourselves, and He had a plan to save us from the very beginning. He said that He would send His Son, Jesus, the promised Messiah, through His promised people, the Jews. 
He promised that his son would die, and in that death, he would take the punishment for our sin and idolatry, and in return, he would give us his righteousness. He promised that his son would not stay dead, but as we celebrated last week, he would rise and he would destroy the power of sin and death in our lives. And this promise was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And we get excited about that. But Jesus doesn't happen physically if the Jews are not preserved in exile. And so that's where we tie this story in. We're like, man, God, that's beautiful. It's beautiful that you would continue to preserve a people that don't even, they don't even love you. They don't deserve you. They run from you. They tell you they don't want you. Sounding familiar? And God preserves them. And he rescues them with Esther. And so we get to spend many weeks in this, seeing how God preserves and how he rescues and how he saves. And we know that he saved us through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your sovereign plan to redeem your people. Your redemption of the Jews, your preservation of their lives in the story of Esther is a beautiful encouragement to us today. God, we want to be the hero of the story, and yet we know that we, like the king, are a prideful and sinful people. But you are great, and you are powerful and heroic. You are the God who sent a son to the earth to deliver us from our sin. You came as a man, the Jewish Messiah, to redeem your people and save us by grace. Lord, we rejoice in that hope for salvation today. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Finally, we look forward to your coming again when all things will be restored and you will reign forever. Amen.